Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. We're coming at you with a fresh episode, and do we have intro material this week? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, my intro material is a rant. Okay. Oh, okay. So we do. Okay, perfect. Let's hear it's, it. It's the most first world bullshit that you're ever going to hear in your life, but regardless, I'm annoyed. Okay. Annoyed, you know, annoyed might be too strong of a word. Just like, kind of like WTFing. Okay. So... I actually, like, love working from home, like, wouldn't have it any other way, but sometimes it's, like, nice to, like, get out and about, try a new cafe, try a restaurant, whatever. So, this restaurant near me, Dante's, if you guys live in the city, you'll know, like, I'm talking about there's two locations. There's one that's Greenwich Village and one that's West Village. They kind of have this, like, hoity-toity reputation, whatever, but honestly, the venues are freaking cute, and their espresso martini is, like, fucking great. So, I get it. But I've nice never gone morning there for espresso food. martini. <laughs> oh my god! Can you imagine? Like I would literally. Sam's just drunk. AF, That's actually really interesting. Now that I think about it, that that like definitely should be a brunch drink. It's an espresso martini. A thousand percent. I just realized. Like that. it is. If any restaurant. Not, oh my god! This dog does outside of my apartment is like has his head falling out the window, and it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. Also, speaking of dogs, Smalls is with me. He's a city boy this week. And if you hear... Oh, my God. He's a city boy? If you hear some snoring, it's it's him. But anyway, sorry. Continue the rant. What happened? Oh, okay. This will... We're going to have to circle back to Smalls because yeah. I just... Yeah. We're going to have to have a Smalls I'll answer moment. questions but, after. Okay. Thank God. I love this Q&A moment. But basically... I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the one that's closer to me slash just more aesthetically cute because obviously we love a good picture moment, whatever. Honestly, the green of this place goes with my pink laptop and I just was thinking we were going to have a moment. But they don't have fucking Wi-Fi. Every restaurant in this area has Wi-Fi. Everyone's working. Everyone has laptops out. Like if you're offering breakfast at 10 something in the morning in New York City Mm. and you don't have wi-fi you're useless to me useless to me all right so anyways i ate and then wait here's okay wow i sound so obnoxious but their breakfast menu this is where i really i really want to zero in here you know what i ended up eating for breakfast because this is one of the very few things on the breakfast menu what's what cauliflower with tahini i had a cauliflower salad for breakfast at 10 a.m because they didn't have a breakfast menu at the breakfast spot they literally had oatmeal was the one thing that they had. And then avocado toast and everything else was like obscure, like side veggie kind of dishes that were like not breakfast foods at all. All I wanted was some scrambled eggs. Basically, I should have gone to Bouvet. I'm sounding so obnoxious. Cancel me immediately. 
I just wanted scrambled eggs and Wi-Fi and some cute environment. Scrambled eggs and Wi-Fi. (laughs) They wanted you to unplug. You should have just gone to like a diner. (laughs) First world problem for sure. But I understand the, you know, bit of frustration. I did receive a text from you. (laughs) Angry. (laughs) So I heard it. But I'm glad everyone else gets to hear the story too. (laughs) I'm sure it's just making their day. But they're like this privileged ass bitch, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but I just really wanted scrambled eggs and Wi-Fi. Scrambled eggs and Wi-Fi, you know, maybe that's a new merch item. We'll see. Honestly, I like it. Wait, does Biggie and do- oh my god, not Biggie, does Smalls like scrambled eggs? Can dogs eat eggs? Yeah, they can. Actually, I saw a recent TikTok too of somebody putting together like this extravagant meal for for their dog, and they do it every day. And one of the things they put in it was a cracked egg with the eggshell as well in there because it has like what? a bunch of calcium it's good for them it's like whoa that was crazy oh. but no smalls is here my parents went on a road trip and took biggie because smalls he's an old man so he can't really get around that well so he's oh. he's staying home with me and i decided to bring him up to the city make him a city boy for the week so we'll see how it goes <laughs> Wait, that's so freaking cute. Are you going to put him in outfits? Is he going to have, like, a city attire? Like, I feel like he needs, like, a country a bow tie. moment. And, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Like, he's ready for business. I definitely don't. But if I pass Petco, I'll hit it up for sure. But, again, if you hear snoring, it smells. So, there's that. Aww. But we have a really cool episode today with a really amazing guest. So, I don't know. Do you want to do the honors? I can absolutely do the honors. Uh, drum roll, please. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know if that's my drum roll, but regardless, we are having a conversation, or you're going to hear us have a conversation about early childhood policy and education and everything sort of related to that topic. This is I feel like we say this every time, but this is a tip of the iceberg conversation. This entire section of policy is so rich and deep and has so many layers to it. This is just sort of like scratching the surface. But regardless, we have an amazing guest that gives us the 4-on-1, the starting spot to really understand it all. And that is Rebecca Feinglos Planchard. She is a Senior Early Childhood Policy Advisor at the Division of Child Development and early education in the office of the director at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Woo! We love her, <laughs> and she has literally the world's longest business card. Yeah. Okay? Like, props to this woman for she getting this on in an email signature. Like, yeah. it's freaking phenomenal. She's brilliant. She She's deserves so cool. all the titles. You know the deal. But, anyways, without further ado, here's Rebecca. All right, well, we are super excited to have you on the show, chat all things childhood education policy, everything under the sun. This is a super new topic, so we could not be more excited to get into it, get into the weeds every which way possible. But before we do, of course, we want to give a little background, get the story. How did you end up into politics in the first place? I mean, I feel like that's like, that's always a journey for everyone. So give give us a little bit of uh, the story there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm Rebecca Feingloss Planchard, born and raised in Durham, North Carolina, where I live now in my hometown. But I spent seven years not in North Carolina. So after I graduated from Duke, I taught with Teach for America in Fort Worth, Texas. I taught bilingual kindergarten. 
and I loved the babies, but I think it became pretty clear. I spent two years in the classroom and then two years as an instructional coach, coaching half bilingual general education teachers, pre-K through sixth grade. And it was just really clear that um, on the receiving end of all of these policies, you know, you as a teacher and as a coach, you realize how much of our system and how much of our policy decision-making is, is implemented by people who haven't spent enough time in classrooms. And in particular, I became pretty fired up that even by the time kids got into my kindergarten classroom, even by the time they were five years old, so much was already stacked against them. I taught in a Title I school, so that is a low-income school in Fort Worth. And it was very obvious from day one, which of my students had been to pre-K and which had not, and which of my students had socialized like at all with other kids and which had not, you know, the difference in motor skills was really evident. Like I had students that had never held a crayon before, ever, before coming into my classroom or who were just screaming because they had never been around so many children before because their parents didn't want them to play outside because they didn't think it was safe. So it really fired me up and helped me to realize that if I wanna change outcomes for kids and families in ultimately back in my home state of North Carolina, which is always what I wanted to do, then zooming in on early childhood was probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. And, but I decided if I, if I wanted to be in policy or politics eventually that I needed some more education first. So as I think, some women tend to do like we think mm-hmm. we might need another credential before we get the job that we want. I have yeah. a lot of opinions on that. Yeah. That's another <laughs> conversation. But I'm really, I'm really glad that I went back to school. I got my master's in public policy from the University of Chicago. So that brought me up north slash in the Midwest for a while. Mm-hmm. It was very cold, but I'm <laughs> so, so grateful that connected me to go work in the mayor's office of Chicago for a few years. And we were a scrappy office and just an incredible, I had an incredible boss who is a a woman that is now leading early childhood education for her home state of Massachusetts. She gave me the opportunity to be her right-hand woman as we built out our universal pre-K system in Chicago for the first time. That was back in 2016, we were building that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And when the opportunity (laughs) came up to come home to my home state of North Carolina and advise on all things early childhood, not just education. We're going to have to talk about like what that means when we talk about early childhood, but we'll get into it. I jumped at the opportunity to come home. And so I've been in my role for uh, more than three and a half years now, almost four. And it's taken a, a few twists and turns. We can talk more about that too, but that's been my journey so far and I love it. Love, love bringing amazing women into government. So love talking to y'all. A hundred percent. Well, fast forward to now. You are a senior early childhood policy advisor. Can you explain to us what that role encompasses and kind of also like what is that day to day like? Tell us all about it. Yeah, it's super interesting because, you know, I've been in this the same role for three and a half years, but it couldn't be more different than how it was when I first started. So I was hired to build our state's early childhood action plan, which came out of our governor, Governor Roy Cooper, and our DHHS secretary, Mandy Cohen, this is North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And the two of them are really leading on 
what would it take to change outcomes for kids and families in North Carolina? And it actually comes by investing in our youngest children. When we invest early in programs that support health and education and welfare of kids, we actually raise up everyone. Mm -hmm. So I was hired to, to really build that plan. And I came on in 2018 to lead that charge. It was incredible. It's a really quantitative plan. I got to get into the nitty gritty of like, what does it mean to set goals for government? Like, how mm -hmm. do we actually set goals of what we want to achieve? Super quantitative plan, which is atypical. I think it's a risk to put numbers out for government. Totally, totally. And I guess, spoiler, the pandemic has really messed up us being able to reach any of those goals, unfortunately. But that's like a, a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. So after we released the plan, my role totally changed. I was more doing a lot of community outreach, kind of thinking through how do we leverage this plan? How do we at the local level all the way up to the state? How do we all align and make sure we're, we're rowing in the same direction when it comes to changing outcomes for kids? A plan is just going to sit on the shelf unless we really use it. So we saw counties building their own local plans, aligning many nonprofits aligned their strategic plans to the early childhood action plan. It was getting a ton of traction. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then this thing called COVID came <laughs> in the, That's what the I call early it too. stages of 2020. <laughs> And my, my life changed and my role changed. I lost my father really suddenly at the beginning of COVID, actually the first day of lockdown in North Carolina. And he was my last living parent. And I had been in our state's emergency operations center, asked by Secretary Cohen and other leadership to help lead the charge of what it was going to look like to close schools for the state. Because I was the, the, the person in the secretary's office who had a significant experience in K-12 and, and we really needed more guidance there. And so I was in the building, we were coming up with our game plan to, to close schools. And then I got word that my father died and it, it changed a lot. So needless to say, I took a month off. And by the time, and I, I wanted to come back as soon as I can and probably came back. I know I came back too soon, but I came back because I wanted to help. And by the time I got back, we had already closed schools. And so kind of the next was my incredible colleagues just did incredible work for that month. And then my job for all of 2020 and into the beginning of 2021 was how do we reopen schools? How do we operate? I focused on K-12. I left early childhood land for a little while, though still my role was still to make sure that we were aligning policies in early education since birth to five to kindergarten and through grade 12. I dabbled in advising in higher ed too. I advised on our, our Greek life COVID response for a little oh, while. Oh my gosh. Having had Greek life experience, that was fascinating. Um, <laughs> sure. And, and then at the beginning of 2021, in March of this year, we were you know, told by, by the feds that we would be getting $1.2 billion in federal investment in early childhood to sustain, to restabilize our childcare industry. So I moved out of the secretary's office. At that time, K-12 world seemed a little more stable and we had this big investment coming into early childhood. So I pivoted back to early childhood land and have been there ever since, advising on on how we distribute these funds, these hundreds of millions of dollars, 1.2. Which is billion. like wow. wild. And then when you like break it down, it's like, wait, that's not enough. I feel like you could it's look not, at that right? but. It yes. is funny when it has this like big label and you're like, oh my God, I can't even imagine like having, just looking at that amount of funds. But to sort of back it up and thinking about, okay, all the, the institutions, the organizations that deal with these funds, you yeah. work with or at the 
North Carolina Division of Child Development and Early Education. That is a mouthful. First of all, it's even a tough abbreviation. Yeah, like that might be harder. Like even just memorizing that, I'm like, okay, I got to really think that through. You know, well, give me a second. But what does that department do? Like what, like, what is that tasked with? Can you break that down for people that might not be familiar with some of these departments and sort of, I guess it's almost a little bit like a Russian doll effect. Like there's a department within a department within a department, you know? Totally. Yeah. Oh, I love that analogy. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating is comparing having worked in local government, so city government in Chicago, which is huge, right? So it's not like your average kind of local government experience, right. but worked in city government. And now having worked in state government for three and a half years, I feel like I need a fall hat trick and need to like go to federal next. But (laughs) yes, state government at DHHS in North Carolina, we are a mega agency. So in some states, it's just your Department of Health. In some states, it's just your Department of Health or in some states, it's also just the Department of Human Services. Hmm. In North Carolina, it's the Department of Health and Human Services. And some other states have that kind of big joining together as well. We do. That means we are the largest state agency. We're huge. And we have, I think it's 14 divisions. I think that's right. And one of the divisions is the Division of Child Development and Early Education, DCDEE. Yes, a mouthful. My business card is like an accordion. (laughs) I was literally going to say, like, how do you get that all on one card? Can you? Is it possible? No, no, no. My email signature (laughs) is like a whole nother email, right? Just like here all the ways. No, it is, we are a large division as well. Our role as a division, as DCDEE, we regulate the childcare industry in the state of North Carolina. And we license every single childcare program in the state. In some other states, early childhood education and child development can live in our, in, in a department of education. In some states, it's like ours, that it lives in the Department of Health and Human Services, because that's the thing about early childhood education. It's more than you have to get pre-K out of your head as the only thing that is early childhood education. Early childhood education development is so much more than pre-K. We are constantly talking about this mix of child health and safety and development and education. It's not crayons, right? It probably isn't developmentally appropriate to put a crayon in the hands of like, you know, a one-year-old in childcare, but we regulate that industry as well. Wait, I have another question. This like totally just like, what about like, okay, so you mentioned licensing. What is it? And obviously just based off what you're saying too, like there's so many different little sections within this broader category, but like, how do you get a license? Like what qualifies is like, a childhood service that's like, okay, this is okay. Like we can approve this. This makes sense. It's safe. It's hitting all the qualifiers. Yeah. So we in North Carolina were one of, we like to believe we were the first state, but there's a contest that maybe there was another state that was <laughs> but we set up what it, it meant to license a high quality child care program. We were one of the first states in the country to do that, which meant, you know, what are the number of kids you can have in a program at one time? What are the education requirements, like the levels of education of teachers, of the site director at your program? What constitutes an environmentally friendly and developmentally conducive space for kids to learn in? There are so many different things that go into licensing, but I want to give you kind of three buckets to think about a childcare program in. So 
One is what you might actually maybe four. So one that you might automatically be thinking about is pre-K, which I kind of poo-pooed on a second ago as there's so much more to early childhood education than pre-K, but it is an important component Mm -hmm. of what it takes to get a child developmentally on track for the rest of their lives. Pre-K you might think of as being situated in a public school. And in a lot of cases, it is. You might have a little pre-K classroom of three and four-year-olds. It might be kind of at my school that I taught in. We were on the same wing. The kindergarten classrooms and the pre-K classrooms were together, kind of next to each other. Everyone was small and cute. And then the fifth graders were on the other side of the school, kind of separated. In North Carolina, we have a mixed delivery system, which means that there are publicly funded, exclusively publicly funded early childhood programs like a pre-K program in a school. Cool. Mm -hmm. You can also have a North Carolina pre-K program that is a specific model of preschool in a private childcare center. So you might've seen maybe on your block or somewhere when you're traveling or you're walking down the street, you might see like ABC childcare Or you might see like, you know, Maddie's Babies, like Mm -hmm. that kind of a program. Those are private childcare sites. They are privately owned and operated. Stats in North Carolina are that 98% of them are owned by women. Think the majority of them are women of color, but we're getting better data on that. There's so much to say about this entire industry being run on the backs of women and women of color who have been historically grossly underpaid for decades for what they do. So this mixed delivery system for pre-K, public schools, private schools, now go even younger than pre-K. Think about the fact that you could have a classroom of infants in cribs. You know, there might be like five of them in a classroom, but that is childcare. And you would see that in North Carolina in a private childcare site. So again, you know, Maddie's babies, they might go there. There's another bucket. There's two more buckets to highlight for you on how a childcare program might look in the state of North Carolina. We also license private childcare homes. So Maddie could look after eight babies at her house. And that it would be (laughs) amazing and also incredibly challenging. Mm. And the women that do this for their communities, that they they own and operate a childcare program out of their own home, those are the mamas of their neighborhood. They provide an essential service, particularly during COVID. We're probably gonna talk more about the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we're distributing through childcare stabilization grants, this federal money that's coming in. I think about how game-changing that federal money is going into the hands of those mamas Mm -hmm. into their pockets when they, some of them have never drawn a salary in their lives for running a childcare home. They just don't draw a salary. They just invest it back into the kids. Wow. It is mind blowing. That's incredible. Last bucket in North Carolina is we also provide, it's technically not the same kind of license and the quality rating that our other programs would have, but you can also operate a faith-based childcare program in the state of North Carolina. So that might be out of a church. We have many of those, but they are, they, they meet, you know, rigorous standards, but it's just kind of a, a different way to get a license. I was curious about that too, because I went to, I know pre-K is not the whole, you know, kick caboodle here, but yeah, mine yeah. was like through a church, which is also funny because I'm Jewish. So I really have to ask my parents how that went down, but regardless. <laughs> but, but, but why that is, is because 
it is often just so hard to even find childcare totally. and our faith-based communities do it really well. Yeah. And they operate it out of churches. There, there are plenty of childcare programs. You are not the only one who has been in that same situation where you're like, I'm Jewish, but here I am. <laughs> like, going to Christian program. You know what? It's fine. I'm sure you had a wonderful experience and that you were loved and cared for in those early years and were exposed to a lot of print rich religious texts and I'm sure it was wonderful that's all that matters that's true and honestly like I used up all of their art supplies so you know I'm so sorry to that pre-k but um I'm sure they loved you you know just (laughs) that little blonde cherub but nonetheless getting into some of our stupid questions which are not stupid but we do have a lot of them and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about early childhood education childcare versus daycare can we get into that and Explain, like, when someone says childhood education, what does that encompass? Yeah. Okay. If there's one thing that actually two things, these are my top two takeaways for you from our whole conversation. Number one, early childhood is more than pre-K, period. Like, if you you walk away with nothing else, you're like, pre-K is not the end of the story when we talk about early childhood education. So that's like point one. Point two is that we say childcare, not daycare. And the reason why we say that in the field is that we care for children and not days. Mm. And, you know, the root of of the term daycare to me really, I think it de-emphasizes the importance of the labor of women in caring for children. Mm -hmm. It's not just a place for babies to sit, right? We want in the state of North Carolina, we want childcare teachers to have college educations, to have degrees specifically in child development. Because what it takes to be a high quality early childhood teacher in a childcare center is like a whole skill set that is not just babysitting. You know, you have yeah. to know about like brain development concepts like the idea of serve and return, the interaction that you have with a child when you smile at a child and they smile back at you and you you make sounds at each other or you touch each other, that takes training. That takes theoretical understanding of, of what child development is. So we say childcare, not daycare. There's so much more than just a place for kids to nap during the yeah. day. Yeah, I, we could talk about that all day. <laughs> yeah. And and the idea of, of what early childhood education is, if you can't separate out like academic learning in childcare from mental health supports or from social emotional development, right? Like let's say you're doing an activity in your classroom, you're talking about art supplies. Let's say you're doing some kind of an activity that's like building early quantitative development, quantitative awareness, number Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Let's say you're painting, I don't know. And I don't know if y'all remember, this is like me nerding out in early childhood art, but there's these like bingo stampers that you can I buy. I love and those. Little, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so it's a great mess-free way. It's, there's never no mess. With no. Them. Mess-free. Not with me as a child, Always let me tell you. In the <laughs> equation. <laughs> but if, if you're like having kids count out like a number of stamps or a number of stampers, something and you're running into a problem where kids aren't sharing well, like you are constantly immersed in social emotional development Mm -hmm. and everything that you do. You can't separate out academic. And then lastly, right? Like kids can't learn if they're hungry. Kids can't learn if 
if they have poor dental health and they have headaches because their teeth are not are rotting, they can't learn in a classroom. If mom or dad OD'd the night before, the opioid crisis is horrific in my state and it impacts our young children every single day. All of that goes together. And that's why I've all, I've loved my career in early childhood because I get to touch on all the things. Yeah, I get to, you know, learn about oral health policy in North Carolina, which is not something that I had paid attention to particularly. Yeah. And the more that I learned about it, even in my own classroom with my own kids, the more you realize that the health and well-being of children, even before they come into the classroom, that's make it or break it. Totally. Well, moving forward to our next question, what is yeah. school readiness? Oh, God. when I saw that y'all were going to ask me this question, I was like, okay, here we go. So this is my <laughs> I, I hate the phrase school readiness with all of my heart okay. because it implies that our children need to be ready for our schools and Ooh, not that okay. our school needs, needs to be ready, ready for our for children. Yes. And it is, it's such a common phrase. Everybody says it, you know, where you won't see it in our early childhood action plan for the state of North Carolina, because it was, it was one of the hills that I died on for that plan. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't like that phrase. Our systems as, as, you know, a government bureaucrat for my entire career, just about (laughs) other than teaching, I believe it is my job to, to thoughtfully steward our taxpayer dollars in a way that serves every single North Carolinian. And mm-hmm. our schools should not be stagnant and they shouldn't just be the, the end goal for our young children to be ready for. Absolutely not. I think about the services we provide. Early intervention is like a whole nother bucket of what early childhood education is. Early intervention is more in the public health side in North Carolina, but that's like, how do we get kids before they go to kindergarten connected to things like speech language pathologists, or maybe they need physical therapy. Maybe they have other developmental um, needs. All of those play into what some people might call school readiness. I would say that we are charged with ensuring that our kids have access to services every single day that set them up to be developmentally the best they can be. But yeah, I don't believe in the phrase school readiness. Oh, that's such a good point. Let's talk about another one that's a little controversial, which is the Head Start program. What is that? Like, why does that get thrown around all the time? I'm like, I feel like I should know more about it. Yeah. So interesting. So Head Start is a federally funded, very high quality early childhood program that has been around for a long time. And in some states, the Head Start system, the Head Start program is the only early childhood education that is available. It's not a bad thing. It's incredibly high quality. In North Carolina, it is one of the programs, one of the avenues that a family could pursue. Head Start is for low income. Again, very high quality, very centered around how do we integrate parents into the development of their child? How do we teach parents the skills that they want to to be able to have anyway? Every parent wants what's best for their child, period. And I'd say the Head Start program and mindset is really driven by that. How do we integrate parents into everything that we do in early childhood education? So I think that's the key. Head Start is federally funded. There's no state funding that supports Head Start. In North Carolina, there is a Head Start collaboration office leader who sits in our Department of Education. But remember that our child care system is regulated out of our 
Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina. So we are also like many other states where there's a split and there are little pieces of early childhood regulation support that actually live in other departments or other divisions too. Head Start is one of them. So we collaborate, we call our Department of Education, North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. That is okay. uh, DPI. Um, so Head Start is supported through DPI. We collaborate with them. And it's, it's funny because you know, I wouldn't, I, I would never say that Head Start is controversial. That is not at all what I, I wouldn't say that at all. I'd say it's an incredibly high quality program, costs a lot of money. It's expensive because early childhood is expensive. Mm-hmm. Early childhood education is expensive, period. And we need to continue to invest more in it than we ever have. And right now, you said this earlier, Samantha, just about, you know, it's weird having all of this money and we, we have never had access to funds like this in the early childhood field. It is weird for me as a policymaker yeah. to say, how am I giving out hundreds of millions of dollars this quarter to childcare providers across the state? Right. Never That's had to do overwhelming. that. So cool. But yeah, yeah, Head Start is, is federally funded. And Amazing. I think that's in the high quality. Well, Moving on to kind of like look at this as bigger picture of like the U.S. as a whole. You're doing amazing work in North Carolina. And speaking of just the funding that goes into early childhood education, can you kind of paint the picture of where we're at like as a nation in terms of early childhood education? Is it well funded? Is are things looking up? How are we? How are we doing? <laughs> well, here's here's what's really interesting. So let's like travel back in time for a second mm-hmm. and pretend that it is January of 2020. And okay. maybe even like December of 2019, okay. peaceful days and <laughs> the best days. Yeah, before we knew what was going on, I would have said that our early childhood education sector in America is grossly underfunded and has never had significant product profit margins at all, and is built on the backs of women and particularly women of color. Mm-hmm. And they've been holding down the fort for many, many decades. And we uh, really need more investment in early childhood education. That's what I would have said in December of 2019. It's basically what any early childhood policy person would have told you. If you fast forward then a few months to COVID, I think what we saw was a very quick realization by all Americans of how essential childcare as a service is. And that when our childcare programs close, we can't work. Right. We can't. Mm -hmm. And in North Carolina, we never closed all of our childcare programs. We facilitated through providing federal funds as soon as we got them, through bonuses to our childcare teachers very early on, way before other states did it, we kept our childcare programs open at first just for employees of um, essential industries and then able to reopen for everybody very quickly. And in other states, they shut down. And again, when you shut down your childcare programs, you shut down your economy. Mm. So I would say that we in America saw that we must invest way more in our early childhood education programs because it's an essential service, because folks realize how how before the pandemic our programs were teetering 
on profitability. Remember, we were talking about how there are different types of early childhood programs. Yeah. The public ones that mm. might be in your head are really not the only story here. Yeah. It's those private mom and pop sites, your childcare homes too, that if you're not able to keep the lights on right. before COVID, during COVID, I'm sure you can imagine it was incredibly challenging for them. Right. And so now what we have is a totally different conversation in America about early childhood than we had before the pandemic. And I would say solely from an early childhood education policy perspective, it is amazing what has happened because of COVID and it gives me so much hope. We saw money come in almost immediately from the feds to support our childcare industry in 2020 just to keep the doors open. We distributed operational grants in North Carolina, and that's true across the country, to keep the lights on. Cool. So that's great to keep things afloat. Right. How do you keep that going beyond the pandemic? Yeah. And so now what we already have, this is before Build Back Better. So mm -hmm. that's this is like before that dream even comes true. Yeah. We have right now in North Carolina, $805 million to distribute to childcare programs through stabilization grants. And we're in the middle of that process right now. First grants go out in a couple of weeks here, but we just finished our application process for that. We are one of, you know, every state in the country is, is distributing money. We're really proud of the way we're doing it in North Carolina in a really equitable data focused way. We have over 500 million that is still sitting in our general assembly in their coffers, unfortunately, right now, because we don't have a budget. I lived in Chicago for three years. Illinois never had a budget when I lived there. And so I feel like I have brought this kind of no budget mentality. We don't have a budget in North Carolina. So there's 500 million plus dollars that's being held up right now by the North Carolina General Assembly that could be going to our child care programs, but cannot yet. That is all game-changing, totally game-changing money. Yeah. For the first time in America, we are going to have child care providers make enough money that they can get off food stamps. They can get health insurance. Mm -hmm. They can get access to retirement. Like these are all concepts that we would imagine for the women who are providing this essential service to our kids and families, that they are receiving these public services because they can't make ends meet themselves. It has been unacceptable. That's yeah. changing right now. Yes. And we are doing that because there are not enough teachers, period, mm. birth to grade 12. And Which, we have to get them in our classrooms. Which like begs, you know, the classic question of like, if we'd been doing this right for however many years, you know, since the get go, we wouldn't be in this need to problem yeah. solve, you know, position in the first place. Right. Preach. Tell them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's so speaking of sort of like, you know, okay, now we're in the spot, you know, it's like we're problem solving. People had, you know, sort of these realizations that became very clear very quickly. Like with everything, there's still people on, you know, all sides of the aisles, you know, people with so many different perspectives on like, you know, how do we fund this, you know, or what's really necessary and whatnot. Like when it comes to early childhood education, like what are sort of the political stances on it? Like, is there a liberal perspective? Is there a more conservative? Like what's the, yeah. the pulse on that? Super interesting. So I would say a few decades ago, you probably would have heard a more traditional, like, oh, we don't need early childhood education because the man it goes to work and the wife stays home and she'll take care of the kids, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I would say that is far less 
of the conservative argument at this point. Like we really just don't hear that as much. Mm -hmm. There is broad, from a voter standpoint, there's broad bipartisan support for increased investment in early childhood education from a voter standpoint. That is across all, you know, Republicans, Democrats, voters agree, more money for early childhood. Cool, so then where does the breakdown happen? And, you know, I would argue that it is still that our elected officials are predominantly male and older and may still be a little bit more in this previous mindset of, well, you know, do we really need do this really need kind of investment? Yeah. This seems really expensive. This was not my experience when I was raising my kids, blah, blah, blah. Now, though, I'd say as we, as more of those kind of older male politicians are, are leaving office, yeah, what we're seeing now is less of a partisan split around the need of early childhood ed. Like there's agreement there. It's just how and what and how, how much investment should there be. I think there's a general lack of recognition of how expensive it is to fund an early childhood program. Maybe you've heard this. I should not have to pay the equivalent of a college tuition to yeah. send my child to preschool or whatever it is to childcare. Mm-hmm. And that is unfortunately like not an accurate view of how expensive childcare is. Yeah. And that like actually maybe that is how much it costs if you want a really high quality program where you have degreed teachers, diapers mm-hmm. are expensive, y'all, like every <laughs> milk yeah. for babies. Like there is a high <laughs> cost here. And that mindset shift hasn't happened yet. And it's it's the idea that early childhood education should be a service that all children need and deserve in America, like the K-12 system has been. And I think the last thing I'll say is there's been some of conservative kind of Republican argument that, oh, you know, the government shouldn't be meddling in our home lives. Like they shouldn't be offering this kind of universal access to pre-K, you know, it's kind of a loose argument, but it's like too much government intervention. But again, the voting block that elected these folks are are pretty on board. So I just think that tune is, is changing. Totally. That's so interesting. Well, looking, you know, kind of, again, bigger at this national level conversation, especially what's going on kind of right now with Build Back Better. Is there anything we should look out for in the Build Back Better plan? Is there anything else outside, like other policies being pushed through? Like what's going on right now, especially national level stuff regarding all of this? Y'all, Build Back Better is like the best holiday present. (laughs) It will be my Hanukkah present. I can't wait. Here's what's amazing. I actually was just at an event the other day. My congressman, my longtime congressman, David Price, is retiring. And I was having a conversation with him about Build Back Better. And the infrastructure bill had just passed the Mm -hmm. day before. And so, you know, I said something like, you know, Congressman Price, thank you so much for all of your leaders. We got to get childcare pass. And he said, yep, childcare and pre-K, we'll get it. And just that little phrase, I just have to tell you why that was amazing. So universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds is in Build Back Better. Mm -hmm. The early childhood policy crew of America has been cautioning for for months, we actually can't just offer universal pre-K in the country because it will destroy the birth to age three childcare industry. Okay. Think about it. 
if you are if you are a privately owned child care center, Maddie's Babies, and you are told that you will get money from the government to change your infant program to a pre-K classroom, you'll get more money to do that because there's federal funding for it. Guess what? Maddie's Babies is going to be Maddie's pre-K. Mm-hmm. And we're going to lose infant toddler slots, places for young, very young children to go to childcare. They'll be gone. We saw this in the city of New York when they built out universal pre-K for the first time. This is exactly what happened. And it makes sense from an economic perspective. Totally. You're going to do what you're incentivized to do. Right. So what has been messaged from the early childhood policy community to our federal officials and our federal leaders is we actually can't just invest in universal pre-K. You also simultaneously have to invest in childcare, birth to, to three, so infants and toddlers. And you have to simultaneously invest in both to push up the entire system, not to pivot the system to only serve one of okay. those eight yeah. groups. And Congressman Price got that immediately Good. when he was like, yeah, universal pre-K and childcare. Gotta get both. We'll get it done. Yeah. That Love like that. for it was amazing. And that it was just like a little throwaway thing that he said, but he gets it. And mm-hmm. the fact that our federal leaders get that, they've been listening and thinking about how through Build Back Better can we change the entire long-term stability of this industry. It is through this birth through age five investment of everything before a kid gets to to traditional public school. And that's not even talking about paid family leave, which is also game-changing and goes hand-in-hand in this entire conversation. If we, through Build Back Better, are creating a system, I don't have kids yet, but I have two dogs who've been barking somewhere in the back here. (laughs) And when I do choose to have kids, it will be incredible to be able to say, great, I have access to time off where I can just be with my new baby. Mm -hmm. And I can just build that relationship with that baby because we know that those earliest days, weeks, months with that child, that is the most fundamental time in their brain development. Mm -hmm. Every other country does this. We don't do this. Mm-hmm. If we can have paid family leave, and then at the end of my leave period, I have access to childcare that isn't necessarily in a faith-based program in a basement because there's more yeah. access than just that in my community right. because we've actually invested. There are slots available. And then there's access to universal pre-K as my baby turns into a toddler and then gets older. That keeps me in the workforce. And it keeps me just having built such a strong connection with my child from day one. That's what Build Back Better can do. Mm-hmm. And that's for every family in the country, because right now what happens, if you're incredibly poor, very poor, you have access to free childcare. If you're very wealthy and can get off a wait list, you have access to private childcare because you can afford it. Right. Everyone else in the middle, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's anybody's guess whether yeah. you can access it. And even worse now because of the pandemic and limited access. So mm-hmm. Build Back Better is is game changing for this country. It is Good. about game time. Well, Whoa. we are super excited that that is in the works and praying that obviously that we'll gets through. I mean, as yes. we're recording this, it has not been passed, but hopefully by the time the episode comes out, it has passed. But I think yes. that is the perfect way to sort of close our first conversation on That's early awesome. childhood education, which this has been super eye-opening to me as to what the perspectives are and also just like some of the policy out there. 
talk about a time for change for an entire you know segment of yes. government and of course policy and everything like that but thank Super you so excited. much for giving us this rundown and we can't wait to have you back on you're so welcome anytime and there will be plenty to talk about as yes. back better passes and we'll just keep investing and in, in raising kids all over the country. Yay. Thank y'all for and having me. And I can't wait. I'm going to maybe start Maddie's Babies. Um, <laughs> Maddie's and you got me really possible. excited. I'm like, oh, man, I, I want, would send my kids there. Now I want some babies around. Might need to get, get into that. <laughs> They're the best. <laughs> well, thank, thank you again. Top stories of the week. Shall we get into it? Because we have some... <laughs> We have some doozies here. Some real <sighs> doozies. Because, well, starting it off from last week, we thought we'd go over this story and hopefully give a little explainer because we avoided a government shutdown last week because Biden signed a government funding bill into law. And let's kind of run through first what a government shutdown is. I think we might have covered this like back in the day, but very briefly. So. It's that time of year, you know, when the government shutdown is just looming around. So many federal government agencies and programs rely on annual funding, appropriations passed by Congress, and every year Congress must pass and the president must sign a budget legislation for the fiscal year consisting of 12 appropriations bills, one for each appropriations subcommittee. So Congress has not yet enacted any of the 12 bills for 2022 that make up the discretionary spending budget. In a shutdown, federal agencies must discontinue all non-essential discretionary functions until new funding legislation is passed and signed into law. Essential services uh, continue to function and as do mandatory spending programs. So things that are affected by the government shutdown, Social Security and Medicare, um, benefit and verification and card insurance would seize. So there's that. Environmental, food inspection, national parks, air travel, TSA agents were working without pay, which caused them to leave the job, longer lines at airports, et cetera, health and human services, IRS, all these things. So I think, you know, what this reminded me of is we did talk about it last year because, of course, there was a government shutdown looming again. Trump was in there, too. So that made it a whole other situation. But I remember I was going on my national parks trip and I was like, if Trump fucking (laughs) makes my national parks trip like canceled i i'll lose it that'll be the final straw for me so yeah i don't know if you guys remember this again like air travel all these things i want to actually figure out the stat of like how many government like consecutive government shutdowns we've had recently because i feel like there are a lot let me just like see if we can pull that 2018 and 2019 and then 2020 it was about to happen and i think they like barely avoided it but yeah so biden signed into law on friday a bill to keep the government funded through mid February, though, so... Yeah, so this conversation ain't over. That is for sure. Yeah. But anyways, the Senate, they voted 69 to 28 in favor of continuing the resolution just after the bill was approved by the House. So the Senate vote was bipartisan with 19 Republicans voting on the bill. So, moment for... Bipartisan bill. There it is. Ironic, because I literally just sent a TikTok to the interwebs about bringing back bipartisanship and how we haven't had it in a while. I mean, we have moments. We've had some bills go. I know there's some Veterans Affairs things that are in the works. But regardless, I'm getting distracted over here. So the House voted 221 to 212 with one Republican, Adam Kissinger, joining Democrats to pass the legislation. By the way, our boy Adam over here, not really our boy, but Illinois' boy, is retiring. But regardless, Schumer, 
Again, these are just so many social media moments as we go throughout this. I just want to point out, uh, check out our latest reel. You know, self-advertisement, always important here. But anyways, he said, I am glad that, why do I want to read this in a British accent? I'm not sure. What is with men? I'm not sure. I'm glad in the end, cooler heads prevailed. The government will stay open. So poetic. The members of of this chamber. (laughs) are walking us back from the brink of unavoidable, needless, and costly shutdown. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. inspiration for centuries from that. Anyways. Anyways. House Appropriations Committee Chair Rosa DeLora also commented on this, and she said the bill has virtually no changes to existing funding or policy, although she said it includes $7 billion for evacuees of Afghanistan. She also said that the agreement will allow lawmakers to craft a longer-term agreement that would take effect next year. Yes. So again, because this is only funding us through mid-February, the White House stated that it is essential that Congress uses uh, the coming weeks to engage in robust bipartisan negotiations to reach agreement on appropriations and avoid the devastating effects of a full year continuing resolution, aka another shutdown. So there's that on that. We will see what happens in February, but fingers crossed that we can, you know, ring the bipartisan bell once more. But moving on to another story, the Justice Department, the DOJ, as they call it, are suing Texas over the new redistricting maps. So the Justice Department sued Texas on Monday due to the new redistricting maps that they made. They stated that the plans are discriminating against minority voters, specifically Latino voters who fueled the state's population boom. And the lawsuit states that Texas violated part of the Voting Rights Act in drawing new district boundaries. And so the lawsuit also notes that Texas population growth has come from black, Latino, and Asian people, but the maps scatter the voters across districts, which dilutes their votes and really denies them the ability to choose their representatives. So, And they also created districts in bizarre shapes. Classic. Like, so freaking wacky. So the Dallas area is described as a seahorse <laughs> shaped in order to preserve seats Not for classically like white Republicans. Like, can you imagine? You're just like, am I looking at something from The Little Mermaid or Finding Nemo? Or like, is this You know, it would be a funny like just activity would to bring the maps in to a kindergarten class and have the kids have to like decipher what each shape is. Wait, I kind of love this. <laughs> Wait, this, honestly, why even a kindergarten class? We should do this. Yeah. Guess the shape. Yeah. Connect the dots. We have created Or it could, be, it could be a coloring book, adult coloring book of gerrymandered districts. Yeah, we'll start working on that. We'll add it to the idea factory. <laughs> we, we come up with a new idea every episode. That's just the beauty of our brains. Oh, I'm typing this right now. You think I'm not? <laughs> It's like, <laughs> talk about rebranding politics. We're doing it. <laughs> we are doing it every damn day. <laughs> but okay, anyways, circling back to these bizarre shapes here. So, unfortunately, this is not the first time that Texas has acted to minimize the voting rights of its minority citizens. 
according to Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta, which was said during a news conference with good old Attorney General Merrick Garland. So decade after decade, courts have found that Texas has enacted redistricting plans that deliberately dilute the voting strength of Latino and black voters and that violate the Voting Rights Act. To also give some background, some context here, oh my, some context, some context, ladies and gents and humans of the earth. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that it won't referee, in its mind, referee, it can hear person gerrymandering disputes, i.e. maps trying to benefit a political party. So they're like, shoo, shoo, get out of here. Not our business for They just like whatever here. Honestly, sometimes the Supreme Court is just like a little too Switzerland for me. I'm like, take a stand. I mean, yeah, and if they could take a stand favorably for women's bodily autonomy. Oh, that'd be that amazing. That would be great. I would just I would absolutely love that. that. I would love that. It um, would just be so cute. Yeah, it would be really but, cute. Though. But basically, so also spokeswoman for Governor Abbott said, it's no surprise that Democrats in Washington are attacking our state's redistricting plans. We are confident that Texas redistricting plans will be upheld in the courts, and our office continues working with the office of the attorney general to ensure Texans are represented fairly. And so in West Texas, competitive 23rd district, the map trimmed out areas near El Paso and San Antonio to lower the share of Latino voting age residents by 9%. In the Dallas area, it pulled black and Latino residents into the Northwest suburbs out of the district. Republican rep <clears throat> Beth Van Dune. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> D-U-Y-N-E. That's her last Dwine. name. Dwine. Cute. Okay. Who narrowly defeated Candace Valenzuela, a Democratic Black Latina candidate last year. And then in the Houston area where the share of the white, white population is dwindling, the map kept six of ten House districts as white majority or plurality districts. So the legislature refused to recognize that the state's growing minority electorate, and although the Texas congressional delegation expanded from 36 to 38 seats, Texas designed the two new seats to have Anglo voting majorities. You guys, former rep, Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat who is challenging Governor Abbott next year, shout out, we're rooting for you, Beto come through so beto you guys he said texas leaders would rather gerrymander election maps and handpick their own voters than earn their place in power by listening and responding to the needs of texans and that just couldn't be closer to the truth you know we stand we stand well anyways enough of my singing and on to the next story that is talking about good old GOP rep Nunes, who is leaving Congress, what a shame, for Trump's social media firm. So this is ruffling some feathers across across the party, across everywhere, honestly. A little ruffle here, a little ruffle there, whatever. So this California Republican, yes, they do exist, they are very much a thing, is leaving the house, like we said, and he is going to serve as the CEO to Trump's little media company situation starting January 2022. The company is planning to launch social media platforms to rival competitors, such as Twitter, who had blocked Trump's account, and was like, mm, sorry, finally. Same goes for in June when Facebook suspended Trump's account for two years. So I hate to give like Trumpy boy like a little platform here in terms of direct quote. But what did he say? His quote, Devin understands that we must stop the liberal media and the big tech from destroying the freedoms that make America great. I just, I... 
Nunes decision is also coming when his future as a politician in California is in limbo because he would be facing re-election and a challenging one at that. So Nunes said in a statement, the time has come to reopen the internet and allow for the free flow of ideas and expression without censorship. The United States of America made the dream of the internet a reality and it will be an American company that restores the dream. (laughs) Trump's decision to select one of his biggest defenders to oversee his new media group instead of, you know, a seasoned business leader makes clear that he intends to use the company for political benefit as much as for profit. Also, fun Mm -hmm. fact, Nunes has sued CNN and Twitter for defamation in the past. Fun fact. And then in early 2021, two days before the January 6th insurrection, Trump awarded Nunes the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in a statement, the White House credited Nunes with uncovering the greatest scandal in American history, referring to his efforts um, to discredit the Russian investigation. Your heater is going off, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's yelling. Well, this will be interesting to watch, and that's really all I have to say about it. Let's move on to, like, this new story that gives me hope and makes my heart feel warm. Amen to that. So, in case you guys have missed this, Stacey Abrams is running for governor of the state of Georgia for the second time. So, she announced last week that she will, again, run for the seats. Democrats obviously are facing a rough national environment across the board. Obviously, Georgia's no exception to this, but current Governor Brian Kemp is facing challenges within his own party. So this campaign, this 2022 campaign, is going to look really different. But also, just going, honestly, it's going to be a bloodbath if we're being very specific about it. But essentially, due to Abrams' hard work in 2020 with registering, mobilizing, infrequent Democratic voters, there's a chance she could win. She is a big freaking deal, and for, with good reason and a big name. So just as a little refresh, Joe Biden did win Georgia by 12,000 votes and John Ossoff, Maddie's husband and Raphael Raphael Warnock won runoffs to have democratic control in the Senate. So things are shifting, but obviously we're dealing with redistricting. We will have an episode focused on where redistricting sort of lands and everything like that coming up in January. A quote from Abrams, and she said, we have a current governor who has failed the people of Georgia that as the pandemic has raged, he has left behind too many communities that he seems to ignore, the real pain that's hurting families and hurting areas of the state, and that he seems to be focused on those who agree with him. And if you guys remember Purdue, not Purdue chicken. I'm really on an agricultural goal today. <laughs> Anyways, he is also running for governor. He's Republican. That will be primarying Kemp. So, Kemp's quote? Mole, mole. This Kemp quote, I can't. I think it's a rallying point for Republicans because we know that this is not just the Georgia radicals that we're going to be facing. It's going to be the Hollywood crowd and everybody else is going to flood money here. I would actually just like to make a very big point and that Georgia has become, this is such an interesting comment by him, because Georgia has actually become one of the most popular places to film movies yeah. and film TV shows yeah. and everything in the country, outside of like California, et cetera. Yeah. And like they need, from an economic point of view, maybe not need, but definitely benefits them yeah. to have that investment yeah. from He's that idiot. industry. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. <laughs> He's an idiot. Um, yeah. Well, super excited about about this and she's a legend i'm just like she's a legend mm-hmm. but that is it for this week those are the top stories housekeeping items there is there is one at least and that is that we have a new website and new logos so go check oh, them out yeah. 
They are on our Instagram. And then the website is girlonthegov.com. We have a bunch more info about us and what we're doing and what we're offering. So go check it out. And Brand Ambassador Program info is on there. So if you have not signed up for a Brand Ambassador Program, go check that out. Again, it's completely voluntary. And whatever time you have is welcome for a Brand Ambassador Program. So go sign up at our website and follow, subscribe, rate, review. (laughs) And we'll be seeing you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.